I guess the, so the, my fondest memory of Christmas is when I was much younger. I think it was about, um, uh, I, I forgot, I was maybe about seven or eight years old. And uh, my parents, we, we were born in Korea, I was born in Korea, and we immigrated to the U.S. because my father took a call to be a pastor of a church, a Korean church in San Francisco. And uh, so we, we got there, and um, I was fairly young, and so we had Christmas coming up, and we, we decided to, my parents said, okay, my mom took us to Toys R Us. It's a big toy store, and basically we went to go shop for our Christmas gift. And I recall that, I think, that moment so much because uh, we just immigrated to the U.S. We didn't have much. We were, my dad was a pastor, and so we, we you know, lived very simply. And uh, I remember going to the toy store and each of us choosing one gift. My, my, me and my two brothers, we all chose one gift, right? And we spent long hours, it seemed like, because we wanted to choose that one perfect gift for ourselves. And so we went, went around and went around, and then we saw this toy, auto, like, remote control toy car, and we proudly chose one, and I was trying to look at which one was the best, put one in the cart, so we each had one toy in the cart, and we're going out to check, check out, and I guess it was, that moment was very memorable, because I remember my mother standing beside me, and there was this family beside us, and they had a cart just overflowing with toys, and you could see this kind of sadness in my mom, where she wanted to give us more, but she couldn't. Right, and it was that face was memorable. But that Christmas also memorable is because we bought that toy, and it's interesting. Like we already know what I got, but we couldn't open it and play with it. Right? <laughs> it's like I know what's I know what my Christmas gift is, but we wrapped it up, <laughs> put it under a tree, and we had to wait two more weeks until I could actually open up and play with it, even though I knew it was there. Right? You were just waiting for that day to open up that gift. I don't know why. I mean, <laughs> I knew what it was. But my dad and mom said, no, it's not Christmas yet. You have to wait. You have to wait till Christmas before you open up your present and enjoy that gift. In many ways, the entire Old Testament is a time of waiting, waiting for Christmas. And so is the book of Samuel. Samuel is a time... The book waits for Christmas. What is the whole book of Samuel about? The book of Samuel about uh, book of Samuel is about God giving Israel a king, King David. Right. The book ends with David being king, and in, in 2 Samuel chapter seven, God makes a promise to David as a king that through your descendants, particularly a son, will be born. And, and he will be a king of an everlasting throne. He will rule, reign forever and ever. And so as time and history, you read the book, you move on because it ends with Samuel. You're like, well, I mean, it ends with David. And you're like, well, who's that son? And you think maybe it might be Solomon. And when you read the book of Kings and you realize that's not, he's not the perfect king. And then you keep reading the kings and none of them are perfect kings. And so Israel continues to wait for that perfect king who will reign forever and ever, who will bring righteousness, who will reign and bring salvation to his people, 
And you as Christians, if you know the story, it goes into the New Testament, into the Gospels, and you realize Jesus is that king. If you look at these books, it deals with great people, more than life figures. David, a king. Have you guys met your, what's, what's the political, uh, is it prime minister? Yeah, sorry. Have you guys, any of you guys read, met the prime minister of your uh, city country? <laughs> because you know it's both. Have you guys ever met him? Have you guys ever hung out with him? Or ever thought he may be concerned about you or your family <laughs> or whatever's going on in your life? You think he's actually interested in dialing you up and saying, hey, what's going on, Pastor Z? How's your wife doing and your kids? Um, because you're, when we look at the history of the Bible, we're dealing with grand figures, world history. We're dealing with the entire world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so you figure, well, what does that have to do with me? And what's interesting is you have these grand histories. The book of Samuel presents is going to deal with people like kings and generals, prophets. But yet, how does it begin? It begins with this kind of unknown person named Hannah, Elkanah, this nobody's the little people, and why does it begin that way? Why does it begin that way? You would think you're going to have this great prologue, introduction, talking about royalty, but yet it begins with the little people because God wants us to know that the Savior of the world, the King and Ruler of the universe, is here to deal with the little people, you and me. And so we begin the story here with the person named Elkanah and Hannah. We have this historical context of First Samuel, and it's around 1100 B.C. And if you want to place the historical situation, the historical situation of Samuel overlaps the historical situation of the book of Judges. If you calculate in the, you know, the years, it's around 1100 B.C., and the last judge in the book of Judges is Samson. And when you calculate the years, Samuel, the prophet who's born from Hannah, actually is born only a few, few years after Samson. And so their ministry coincided. You had Samson who ministered in the south, Samuel who ministered in the north. And it's amazing, they have parallel stories. You have this woman who's barren, right? Samson's mom was barren could not have a child, and miraculously Samson is born. You have Hannah's mom, uh, Sam, Samuel's mom, Hannah, who's also barren and miraculously, miraculously born. There's similarities in terms of this miracle births. The book of Judges, what is the book of Judges about? The book of Judges then present the background to what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The book of Judges is about Israel is about the downward spiral, spiritual spiral of Israel. They broke covenant with God. They are sinful, and their sinfulness gets worse and worse as you read the book of Judges. At, towards the end of the book, you see a Levite who was supposed to be a person 
who is to teach Israel the word of God, we see him instead being a priest for an idol. At the very end of the book, another Levite has a wife who's then raped to death by the Benjamites. The book ends by showing us the great sin and depravity of the Israelites. They're like the pagan nations, and in many ways worse. And this spiritual darkness that we see in the book of Judges is the very background in this story, story in chapter 1 of Samuel. Samuel 1 begins in darkness. And I want to highlight four indications to you of the darkness that overshadows Israel in the promised land. The first indication of the dark situation for Israel is given in verse 1. Here, we have a man, we have actually a place called Ramathaim Zophim in the ESV. And basically, that's a long way of saying a city called Ramah. You can see that in verse 19. And we have a man named Elkanah. When we see Elkanah, what we're learning is, first of all, that Israel has abandoned her call. Israel has abandoned her call. See, verse 1 describes this man, Elkanah, as being an Ephrodite in the ESV, or it could be referring to Ephraim, the country. Basically, that identification, being an Ephrodite or Ephraim, is he's being identified in terms of where he lives, his geography. Uh, if, you, if you ask me, oh, t- Tim, what are you? you know, eth- uh, what are you? And I say my parents were Korean, so ethnically I'm Korean, but, but I live in America, and so I say I'm American, but people, you know, that happens to me in Cambodia all the time. I'm like, they ask, the cops pull me over trying to get some bribe money, they're like, Kore? Uh, I say, no, I'm American. They're like, you're not American, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't have blonde hair and blue. You're not, no, I meant not. Uh, no, you're not American. <laughs> I have to explain to them. Okay, I lived, I, I was like, I lived in America, but ethnically, yes, my parents are Korean. Okay, yeah, they're like, oh, okay, Korean American, okay, Korean American, right? And basically, his reference to his being an Ephrathite or an Ephraim is where he lived, but that's not what his tribal descendant uh, relationship is. If you look at First Chronicles chapter six, verse thirty-four to thirty-six, you have the same names: Elkanah, Zuf, right? That's mentioned on this in chapter, uh, chapter one, verse one. And basically, Elkanah is from the tribe of Levites. He's a Levite. And what? Who were the Levites? The Levites were the tribe in which they didn't have a land inheritance from God. Because God was supposed to be their inheritance. They're supposed to possess God. They represented the rest of the Israelites. They were responsible for teaching God's people the word of God, the law. And they lived in different locations throughout Israel. They didn't have a land inheritance. They represented what it means to be in Israel, which is to be holy, separate, separate from the nations, to be a light to the nations, They were to show and teach the nations about God. So what we see in chapter 1, basically, Elkanah, if you you compare it in today's situation, was basically a pastor who abandoned his duties. He was hiding his call. 
He did not want to do what he was supposed to do. He's Israel's in darkness. You see the failure of the leaders of Israel. The second indication that this man had, uh, that the, the second indication that there's darkness in chapter one is that this man had, verse two, what? Two wives. You know, most, um, actually many commentators and and probably most actually Christians kind of overlooked that fact and said, you know, we, you know, we had like Jacob, he had two wives, and kind of dismissed this fact that he had two wives. Some commentators talk about how godly Elkanah was. But if you think about it, what this man does, no matter the fact that others have done it too in the Bible, is still sin. And some people... Uh, Assumes that, well, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing. You know, many people in that area at the same time often had many wives, and so people often tolerate it. But the reality is, there's more recent biblical scholarship that shows that the opposite is true, that the other pagan nations, the non-believing nations, there were many, many of the nations were very monogamous. Egypt, they have a record in Egypt, they have 800 years that range from 1100 B.C. to 400 B.C. They had all these preserved records of marriage uh, documents. Of the 800 years, 800 years, only two men had more than one wife. Egypt was very monogamous. The only people in that ancient times who had many wives were kings. And it's not like the kings just had all this overwhelming flow of love that they wanted to marry all these women. The purpose in which kings had many wives was, was for what? Making treaties. And so they often married foreign women. And so, you know, if you want to make a treaty with another country, you would, you know, to seal that treaty, what they did was basically you had uh, you, the king married the daughter of the other king, basically to make them family members so you won't attack each other Clearly, because you're now family. And that's why kings often had many wives. But besides kings, most of the people had only one wife. In Mesopotamia, there were instances in which if a wife could not bear a child, the law permitted a man to marry a second wife. But you have to understand, in those Mesopotamian laws, there's a lot of restrictions because if you have a second wife, and let's say... Your first wife, all of a sudden, was able to later conceive and have a child. Then the second wife, there's a great consequence. The second wife was allowed to divorce him, and he had to return her diary. And then for added measure, the father-in-law was allowed to come and hit him on the head. (laughs) And obviously, these safeguards clearly would make a person think twice about taking a second wife, even if you... uh, uh, even if your wife did not have a child. You know, maybe some people speculate, maybe that's one of the reasons that Elkanah took a second wife. But there's a problem with that. He's a Levite. He's a, he doesn't have an inheritance. He has no excuse. He, does, he, would, he wouldn't have a land inheritance to continue to try to preserve Clearly the Bible, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, when God made Adam and Eve, he says that you are to cleave to each other and become, the two will become one flesh. 
of all the forefathers in which they did go out and have a second wife, you see the miseries. The Bible text often clearly presents the miseries that follow from doing something that is immoral. The Bible does not criminalize being having a second wife. It doesn't, like for instance, you don't get stoned to death, like prostitution. No one who was a prostitute was stoned to death, but it was immoral. It was a sin against God. Leviticus 18.18, which has a commandment, it said, in that commandment, it says, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And some people misunderstand that text. The point of that command is, yes, you can take a second wife. You know, let's say you got married and you became a widow or widower, you know, widow, widower, you know, your wife passed away, then you can take her, but not while your wife is still alive. This Levite, he's abandoned his responsibilities. I'm sorry, my... Oops. My iPad is freaking out. I'm sorry. How do I get rid of this? Okay. <clears throat> there is spiritual darkness. They have become immoral. And in many ways, then, even more immoral than the nations. The third indication of the spiritual darkness in this chapter is that Hannah is infertile and suffering. Basically, Israel is barren and suffering. And I think maybe probably most of you have experienced some situation may where you may know someone uh, who is unable to conceive, conceive or maybe yourself had uh, suffered in that difficult situation where maybe you were wanting to desire a, a child but unable to. Um, there are some many young couples who've been trying for many years and and maybe some have even decided to adopt because of that. And so we could really sympathize with the heartaches uh, of such Circumstances and situations. Uh, when we when we think about the Bible, God created man and women. In Genesis chapter one, God actually created us to be fruitful, right? Uh, in Genesis one twenty seven, He says, "And God blessed them and said to them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply." But the reality of our situation is that once sin entered the world. God cursed all mankind, and what we call the common curse. We're all affected. Our bodies affected by sin. In so many ways, we aren't unable to fulfill our original calling and even desire. The common curse affects all of us, and for the ladies, for women, it would affect many people in which they're unable to have children or have difficulty uh, having children. Even for Christians. I would say that's true today, even now. Even with being very sympathetic to Hannah, we need to understand that Hannah is in a more unique situation. She's a little different from us. In what way? She, so there's things that we could sympathize, empathize, even apply with her. But there's something also different and unique about her in her situation is that her situation has brought her misery even more grief. It's far worse because she's an Israelite in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, God promised the nation of Israel 
something special. Israel was God's chosen people, and God made a special promise to them. See, he delivers them from Egypt in the book of Exodus, and then he gives them the promised land. He says, I'm going to bring you into that promised land. They were supposed to be a holy nation, separate, representing the kingdom of God. And this is what he promised them when they entered, once they entered into the promised land. You shall serve the Lord your God, and you will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Exodus 23, 26. What God is promising is that he will supernaturally, miraculously, make sure that not a single woman in, your, uh, in, in the nation of Israel will miscarry or be barren. Not a single one. Right? This, is the, this is something that he will miraculously give them and promise them. But on the other hand, if Israel disobeys, If Israel enters into idolatry, God will also supernaturally curse Israel so that they will not be fruitful and be barren. Deuteronomy 28.15 But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all these curses shall come upon you. Curses shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curses shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Her loss, her emptiness, her inability to have a child is a symptom of a greater problem then. Is a symptom of a greater problem. It is basically alienation from God. If you look at our story twice, it says, verse 5 and 6, the text says, the Lord closed her womb. The Lord did it. God did this. See, for Hannah, the ultimate problem she has is with God. Her longing, her deep desire to have something, this, to have a child, which is, if you think about it, something good, right? Having this desire to have a child is a good thing. Eventually turns into resentment and bitterness towards God. I think this is true for many people. Maybe I'm reading into your own lives, but this is very true in my own life where me wanting something, which initially is a good thing that I want, and not getting it first leaves me feeling a little empty, then resentment saying, God, why don't you give it to me? You know, I think this is many young people where you have a guy who likes this girl, and he really, really pursues her, chases after her, and initially she's, you know, and then she says, after, after trying hard, she's like, no, he's disappointed, but this, that disappointment eventually leads to a little resentment, resentment towards her? How could you say no to me? <laughs> and then you see all these other people walking along with their hands, all happy, resentment towards them? That they could be happy and not you. And I bet it doesn't, you know, I'm just taking an example of illustration of a girlfriend thing, but it could be work, money, it could be many things, uh, positions and job positions. You don't get what you thought you wanted. And then eventually, God 
Don't you love me? God, am I cursed? Why why are you cursing me, God? How come everyone else is doing well? And what's going on, God? Why can't I have one? Why me? Where, Where are you, God? You know, her resentment towards God, I believe, for Hannah, is actually made worse by the fact that they're going to church. They're going to church. What do I mean? Every year, what does Elkanah do? He takes the whole family, and they go every year to make sacrifices at the tent of meeting. They're going to church. And when we think about it, going to church isn't always a good thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. You know, oftentimes we see a friend maybe who's struggling and going through some hardship. Uh, something happened in their lives. You say, oh, let's go to church. It'll make you feel better. And you go to church, and the person, maybe that person has a great loss. Like, you know, maybe the person lost a child. And you go to church, and everyone is praising God with their family and children. Take the children up as they pray and worship together. And how do you think that woman would feel? She would be more angry. Everyone is happy. They look at everyone's doing well. And they have they look at this happy family, but what do I have? I lost. And so here, this is clearly seen where Hannah, it says in chapter 1, verse 7, she does not eat. Right? She does not eat. And when it says she does not eat, it's not that she's dieting. The food that she doesn't eat is a double portion of the sacrifice that that Elkanah gives. Okay? You know, he he takes them to the uh, tent of meeting. They have a sacrifice, and it's a double portion of that sacrifice. There are many different kinds of sacrifices. There's one kind of sacrifices where the burnt offering where everything belongs to God. There's a, there's a sin and guilt offering where that sacrifice, the priest But there's a one kind of sacrifice, the peace offering, in which all the people are allowed to eat. And what does it represent? It re- represents peace with God and peace with each other. Fellowship is supposed to be eaten in joy. Today's equivalent would be the communion table in which we will take today. It represents our fellowship with God, with Jesus, and with one another. And she cannot eat that because why? She doesn't have peace with God. There's some bitterness and resentment. It's even further accentuated by the fact that she has a rival. She, this rival who's just Panayana, who just sticks it into her, you know? Oh, why are, you, why are you crying? What's wrong with you? Oh, you lose something? Why are you crying? We're supposed to be happy. Have some cake. Look at all the children that I got. Just sticks it into her. Bring greater misery, a rival, an enemy. I'm sure there are many a times that there were rivals in your life who pretend, some of them even may pretend to be friends of yours. And you just can't have peace with them. They just seem to have to, to be out, just attack you and, 
and out to get you and you just want to kill them. How could Hannah eat this communion meal well, she doesn't have peace with God, but she can't. how could she have peace with this woman sitting next to her and eat this meal together, supposedly having fellowship with her, especially when she doesn't have peace with God? The fourth mark uh, I want to make uh, here so they notice is that Israel is spiritually blind. I'll just quickly point this out. You know, what does Hannah do? She goes to Eli and she's praying to God, right? She's praying to God. And what does Eli think? He's a priest, right? He's supposed to be this godly man caring for the people of God and he thinks she's drunk. <laughs> Stop drinking. You're drunk, you know? She just sees the mouth moving. Maybe she's swaying a little. And so he thinks he's drunk. She, she, he thinks she's drunk. Why does he think she's drunk? He's drunk because he's blind spiritually. He's, it's been so long that he's seen a person praying to God that he doesn't even recognize someone who's acting spiritual. And in fact, most likely he thinks he's, she's drunk because at the temple all he sees is his sons who are priests also getting drunk all the time and sleeping with the women uh, who serve at the entrance of the temple of meeting. So the leadership of Israel is corrupt and blind. In this dark situation, we have a little ray of light. We have a woman who responds in faith. And we would say, I could say it through Hannah, God is giving us a picture of what genuine faith looks like in this darkness. How you are to respond, how you are to live. And I would say she is an example of what a New Testament saint, a person of faith, looks like. As they look, as they, I would say she eventually, I would argue that she waits for Christmas. First of all, I just want you to notice that Hannah is honest. Hannah is honest. When suffering, what does Hannah do? She weeps and mourns and does not eat. There's no hypocrisy. She doesn't just go around along with the flow. I got to go to church, put up my smile, pretend I'm singing and happy, lift my hands up. No. She's crying out. 60% of the Psalms, 60% of the Psalms are laments, cries for help to God sorrows. And so what I want to say is faith gives room, has a place for you to weep and cry out to God in all honesty. So genuine, genuine faith is honest. Genuine faith prays. Hannah prays. In verse 11, we have a woman of prayer in the midst of sorrow. And what is prayer? Prayer is basically an acknowledgement to God that He alone is the one who can save us. If God is the one who closed the womb, then He alone is the one who could open it. He is the only one who can do what is necessary. Prayer is basically a clear demonstration of our humility and surrender to God. It's a clear, visible demonstration of faith. Why? Because what's faith? What's faith? 
Faith is for me to look outward, not at myself, not what I can do, not what I have to do. Faith says, I can't do it, God. You must do it. You know, and I would say here, God is also using Hannah to teach Eli a lesson. Eli, who is a priest, who is spiritually blind, has to know what true religion is, what it means to respond in darkness. The third thing I want to say about Hannah is Hannah changes. Not only, uh, you can see, not only does she pray, she changes. Genuine faith changes the person. How does she respond? True faith responds in joy and peace. Notice how he responds. See, see Eli's words in verse 17 and 18. See, she hears the words of Eli and responds in faith. She, she eats. Verse 18 talks about she eats, eats the communion meal. She has her, she's no longer downcast. She has joy. Basically, she eats the peace offering that indicating I have peace with God and peace with one another. She could eat with her rival because she has placed her faith in God and believed in his promise. She believed in the words of Eli, God's word. See, it doesn't matter that Eli is an illegitimate, illegitimate priest. What is really important is the response of faith, right? Hannah receives a word from the Lord through Eli because Eli holds the office of the priest. It doesn't matter whether he's a simple priest. It depends on the fact that God gave that office and, is in, and, and a person who holds the office and gives the word of God, you can receive that word in faith and be blessed by God. You know, so, you know, we're going to take the communion table. Same thing with the communion table. You know, thank God it doesn't depend on me and where I am. Because I'm a messed up pastor, sorry. I maybe I could identify with Elkanah more and instead of being a faithful pastor. But it doesn't depend on me as a pastor. It doesn't depend on where your pastor is, but he holds the office. And that office, in, in, in that office that he takes, it, he represents God and he offers it to you, the communion table. And as you take it by faith, it's effective and powerful to give you grace. And that's what the response of Hannah in eating now. And having joy is a demonstration of her faith. But one last thing that I want to emphasize here, and this is would be the, I think the most final, most important thing we should note about Hannah is that it sounds kind of obvious, but this is like key and important. Hannah has faith in God. You're like, well, of course, when you have faith, you're supposed to have faith in God. But I want to emphasize this, this point because I think a lot of times. And this is maybe something not new to you, and it might be new, not new to you for to hear, but oftentimes the problem in our Christian life and in anyone's life is that we have faith not necessarily in God, but faith in faith or faith in the gift that God gives. We don't have faith in the giver, but oftentimes we have faith in the gift. If only God does this, do I believe? No, is that, is that how, is that really true faith? True faith is having faith in the giver. 
We respond in joy and peace if God gives us. Whether He gives to us or not, because I believe in God, that He's able. Notice Hannah, this joy, when does she begin to eat and have joy? It's not when she received the child. You understand that? They didn't, she didn't, you know, it says only afterwards, you know, they uh, had relations and conceived. Before any of that happened, before she was even pregnant, she responded to God because what was most important to her was God. But even more so than that, her faith is most clearly demonstrated that it's in God because once she has the child, once she has a child that she's been praying for all these years, prayer and tears, give me a child, and once she has a child, what does she do with the child? She gives up the child. She gives up the child. See, when you read the rest of the story in second, first Samuel chapter 2, where right there, chapter 2, Hannah gives a prayer. She's praying. And this is an amazing prayer. Let me just read verse, one verse of that prayer. She begins by saying, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She's exalting God. It's a praise. It's thanks. And when does she give it? Not when she was pregnant, not when she received the child, but the day in which she's giving the child away is when she's praising the Lord. Is it because she doesn't love Samuel? No, she loves Samuel. She actually even delayed the giving away of the child. You know, let me wait until, let's wait until he, you know, he's weaned, maybe a few years. And then in chapter two, it talks about how Hannah goes regularly to visit a temple to see him. She loves Samuel, but she gives up what is most important and what she loves the most to God because her comfort in life, her hope and comfort in life is in God. This is the important because this is the gospel principle. This last point is this is where you see the gospel clearly seen. Hannah is able to give up this child because she's waiting for Christmas. She's waiting for another gift. We're not sure how conscious she is about what God's promise is and how aware she is, but she gives a song in chapter 2 where she talks about a king, an anointed one. And this song in chapter 2 brackets the end of Samuel, which says, David speaks about himself as the anointed king. And so Hannah speaks about a king that is to come, a gift. God promises David, and from David a child will be born, and that child will be a king who will rule in peace and righteousness. And so when you read the Gospel of Luke, when you read the Gospel of Luke, 
You think the gospel, the best way to begin is about the story of Mary, right? Who will have this child, Jesus. And Mary in the gospel of Luke sings a song when she hears about that she will have a child. She sings a song that's a a version of Hannah's song. To say Hannah's prayer and praise is now fulfilled in Mary. But what's interesting about the Gospel of Luke is that it doesn't begin with Mary, it begins with Elizabeth, who's barren, who's in misery, whose husband, Zechariah, is a priest. And when you read that story, you realize that story is so similar to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and the two wives, Rachel and Leah. Samson's mother, Hannah and Samuel. Why is it so similar to them? Because Elizabeth represents Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Leah, Samson's mother, Hannah. She is Old Testament Israel, all the women and the people of God who's waiting for Christmas. Jesus Christ. He's the true child who will bring deliverance to her. She's, he, he's the one gift that she can keep because Jesus, the gift, is God who will set her free. It's only Jesus who will satisfy her deepest longing and need, not a child, which is peace with God. So I would urge you, brothers and sisters, you can have a faith like Hannah. Waiting also because we are also waiting for his return. Christmas is already here. You already know what that present is. You just can't play with it as joyfully until the day he returns. But even now, there are many ways we are waiting like Hannah. We're going to have be people of prayer, people who respond in joy and peace. And even at times, weep when, when it's difficult. But to place your faith in God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, oftentimes, the holidays, we could say that it's a joyful time for many people, for many Christians. But oftentimes, for many people during the holidays, is the most lonely time of the year where they're actually reminded that they don't have many things and friends. And, and they talk about how like suicide increases this time of the year. I pray that we would always place our hope in Christ, in God alone. And that we can be a source of blessing simply by praying, by having joy, by being a wonderful witness of what it means to believe in you and to trust in the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for my friends here. I pray that we are strengthened in our faith, even when we lose things, that we have a greater hope, that we do not have to sorrow and weep forever and ever, but place our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.